Thanks, Carol. You got the reading of all readings there, and you did well. Uh, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Great to be with you. Let me pray for our time. Father, we thank you for this day. This is a day that you have made, and we rejoice and are glad in it. Uh, we thank you for your word and spirit, and pray that you would make your face to shine upon us, and help us to have insight, wisdom, and understanding as we look at this next part of Genesis. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I was about six years old. My older sister was seven or so, and it was the first weekend in April. My father had picked up the mail that morning and handed a sealed letter to my older sister. And much to our surprise, it was addressed from Buckingham Palace, The letter made us aware that, as residents of Bellevue Hill, later that morning at approximately 11am, Her Majesty, the reigning monarch, Queen Elizabeth II, would be passing through our suburb, along with an elaborate parade. The letter warmly encouraged us, along with all the other residents in our area, to line the streets in anticipation. There would also be free ice creams available for all children taking part in the parade. Well, I can tell you, my sister and I were out the front of that driveway quick as a flash. And in fact, half an hour later, we were still eagerly at the roadside, wondering where everyone else was, especially Lizzie and the ice creams. And we spent a good chunk of time trying to straighten out the priorities of at least two parishioners, old ladies from St. Stephen's, Yvonne and Suzanne, who dropped in to fix up the church flowers next door and who clearly hadn't read their mail. In the end, I'm not quite sure how long we were there at the top of our driveway, but eventually the author of the letter from Buckingham Palace, our dad, (laughs) did come to kindly retrieve us with an ice creaming hand. And my sister and I have been on high alert on the 1st of April ever since. (laughs) Which brings us to one of the themes in our passage this morning, the theme of deception. I mentioned my dad was a minister. (laughs) Deception in the family. Well, make sure you got your Bibles open uh, to that first reading, Genesis chapter 27. And a big question to tie together the narrative in chapter 27 is this, who will receive the blessing? If you're taking notes, there's four scenes today. Scene number one, Isaac's plan. Scene number two, Rebecca's plot. Scene number three, Jacob deceives. Scene number four, Esau grieves. Well, scene number one, Isaac's plan. Have you got your Bibles there open? Just glance, you'll need to have a look at the end of chapter 26. I don't have a slide. Uh, You'll see in the last two verses, just before this chapter starts, the narrator drops a clue or two for us. And before this next story begins, he wants us to know three things that stand out. Firstly, Esau is the same age. We get a bit of a contrast between the patriarchs. Esau's the same age as his father Isaac when he married, 40 years old. Secondly, he marries two Hittite women. And that stands out to us because the Hittites are a subgroup of the Canaanites. And if you remember back to the end of last year, when we looked at chapter 24 in Genesis, Abraham made his servants swear, don't get a wife for Isaac from the daughters of the Canaanites. And thirdly, we're told Esau's two wives are a source of great grief. 
to Isaac and Rebekah. As readers, we start this next story with just a faint shadow hanging over Esau and Isaac, wondering why has Esau made yet another bad choice? Why hasn't Isaac been just a bit more like his father Abraham? active and involved in finding his eldest son's wives-to-be. Well, neither question's answered for us. Chapter 27 begins with a father's plan. Have a look at it, verses 1 to 4. I'm reading from verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and bow and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Two things have changed about Isaac since we last saw him in chapter 25 last week. Isaac's now very old near the end of his life, and he is now blind. He can't see anymore. Two things haven't changed about Isaac. Isaac's favorite son is still Esau and not Jacob. Isaac's favorite question still seems to be, what's for dinner tonight? (laughs) I had someone share with me uh, last week in in our growth group that their father had recently had a successful heart surgery. And one of the first things that he did after his surgery coming out of hospital was to gather together his whole family and share with them how that experience of a potential life and death surgery had sharpened his whole thinking about what really matters in life, about his faith and his love for his family. Well, it's quite revealing about Isaac's priorities here, that faced with the possibility of a deathbed not far away, rather than gather together his whole family around his bed, which is almost certainly the custom in the culture and what we'll see later in Genesis, for a deathbed blessing when the head of the family is dying, Isaac instead calls just one son, the hunter boy Esau. Because what really matters most in Isaac's life is food and Esau and probably in that order. In fact, Isaac has two things left on his bucket list, a tasty meal, or what Derek Kidner calls in his commentary, Esau's gastronomic masterpiece, and second, giving Esau his blessing, Israel's parting masterstroke. Isaac, so. But as readers of Genesis, it's Isaac's use of the word blessing, which should catch our attention And the reason it should catch our attention the most at the start here is because blessing will be the buzzword in the whole chapter. It's repeated right throughout the chapter, comes up 22 times. And the concept of blessing is significant to us because the whole book of Genesis is about blessing. Ever since the curse, back when humanity fell at the fall, we've been intrigued as to who... Who have been intrigued with the Lord's promise in Genesis 3.15 that from the offspring of the woman will one day come a serpent crusher. And ever since chapter 12 onward, God had chosen Abraham, made promises to him and his family to give land, to make him into a great nation and to bring about blessing through him to the nations. And we've been keenly following 
his family line to see how those promises will be fulfilled. Through Genesis 12 to 25, we firstly saw that it would be through not Ishmael, but the miraculous birth of Isaac. But then last week, we saw two developments as we head into the Jacob story. And the two developments we saw were, firstly, firstly, poor old Rebecca was in a world of pregnancy pain and told by the Lord in chapter 25, verse 23, that she's carrying twins, twins who'd become nations and that the older would serve the younger. Secondly, we saw the first fulfillment of that prophecy. Esau made a terrible decision and despised his own firstborn right. He traded it for lentil stew. So with that backstory in the mind, our ears shoot up as we hear Isaac's plan. His plan is to give his older son Esau the blessing and straight away, we know that sounds different to God's plan. So we want to know how's this all going to pan out. And uh, we'll also see in a moment that the ears of someone else, the ears like my son Archie, when people come over for dinner and he should be in bed, shoot up. There's always someone within earshot in Isaac's family too. Which brings us to scene number two, Rebecca's plot. Verse five begins, Now Rebecca was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. And if you've ever been camping, this will probably be no surprise. I've led enough crew camps in my time to know that private conversations that are said in tents are often just a little louder than you think. Well, as Esau heads out decisively following Isaac's plan, like a regen kid headed to Macca's on Friday night, we shift from a conversation between Isaac and Esau to a new conversation with Rebecca and Jacob. From verse 6, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat, so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Did you notice something small, though, back in verse 5? Isaac spoke to his son, Esau. And then in verse 6, we're told Rebekah spoke to her son, Jacob. Just like last week, the battle lines have been drawn for the twins who were fighting from the very beginning in the womb, right down the middle of this family. And if you got the sense in that first scene that Isaac is a bit of a lazy character, uh, in fact, I think that Dave may have mentioned in Sermon Seasonings just in passing, a, a bit like Homer Simpson, which I can't say I've come across in any of my Genesis commentaries so far, uh, though one did get close. Uh, one said, if Isaac's eyesight and memory are failing, his appetite is not. Isaac is depicted in a very passive way when compared to both Abraham and Jacob. He's different to his father and he's different to his wife as well. Rebecca, on the other hand, has always been a woman of action. We're reminded of her well-drawing, her camel hydrating, hydrating, her energetic, beautiful and decisive Rebecca, that we met back in chapter 24 in our first meeting. Isaac has a plan. Rebecca hatches a plot. 
And like a great master chef pressure test, team captain Rebecca has decided on goat for the menu tonight in the ancient Near East. She sends Jacob to fetch local produce only and she'll deal with the rest. After all, the stakes are high. The black aprons are out. The immunity blessing is at stake. Jacob has a reservation or two at first, not so much about the ethical question of deceiving one's own blind, dying father. No, that's not top concern for Jacob. He's worried about lack of hairiness. His temperament's a bit thin-skinned as well. He's full of concern, what happens if it all goes wrong? Not least of which, what happens if a curse gets cast down on my head? Verse 13, his mother said to him, my son, let the curse fall on me. And if you happen to remember that parenting style show that was advertised an awful lot at the end of last year, uh, we didn't watch it, but we did watch an episode or two and I looked it up to remind myself, Isaac's a bit more like the French parenting style. The French parenting style is very refined and it involves training your kids up to have the right palate. Rebecca is a bit more like the tiger mom. Now, tiger moms have high standards for their kids and they're going to help them reach it. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me, says Rebecca. As one writer puts it, if Jacob is smooth, then his mother is a smooth operator. Well, by verse 17, the goats are ready to come out of the oven. Jacob finally looks like Chewbacca. And uh, Rebecca's even managed to bake a loaf of bread for plating up. The big question for all of us watching on at home, can the wool be pulled over Isaac's eyes or not? It's time for judging. Scene number three, Jacob deceives. Well, if you've ever watched a movie with someone who doesn't cope with suspense very well, then this next scene is a bit like sitting next to someone who's squeezing your hand very tightly, tighter and tighter. I came away with an absolutely aching hand from Top Gun 2 a few weeks ago, uh, which is probably more of an indication of Jess's suspense threshold rather than the movie plot itself. Well, this narrator puts us all right on the edge of our seat with tension that builds and builds and builds and we... Sense the uncertainty in Isaac rise. Four times in this scene, we wonder if Jacob's deception will succeed or if his cover is just about to be blown. Pick it up from verse 18. He went to his father and said, My father, yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please, Sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Jacob's first of three lies. And it triggers an early alarm for Isaac. Verse 20, Isaac asked his son, how did you find it so quickly, my son? Jacob's second lie is worse than the first. The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. Isaac's definitely getting suspicious. Next thing, Jacob finds himself right up close to Isaac and we're right there with him. Isaac reaches out. The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he proceeded to bless him. 
Are you really my son, Esau, he asked? Lie number three. I am, he replied. We notice Jacob saying less and less at this point. We're not, we're not saying anything either. Thankfully, Isaac's belly does all the talking. Verse 25, then he said, my son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him and he ate. And he brought some wine and he drank. Then his father said to him, come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went to him and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him. As a parent of toddlers, I'm reminded about Isaac through the rhyme, eyes and ears and mouth and nose. Well, for Isaac, it's been quite the sensory experience thus far, or at least the lack of it. The narrators told us so far Isaac's eyes don't work, his ears aren't sure, his hands, there's a bonus in the rhyme, yep, definitely not Jacob's cashmere, his mouth still got a piece of goat in his beard, and he finally leans in to kiss Jacob, and his nose decides the matter, smells like me, smells like Esau to me. The rising tension finally is resolved as Isaac blesses Jacob. And what a blessing he gives him too. Ending on this note at the end of verse 29, may those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. And won't we see that to be true in coming weeks of Jacob? The deed is done. We can breathe again. Jacob deceives and we have our answer confirmed. Who will receive the blessing? Jacob, the younger, will. So we come to our final scene. Scene number four, Esau grieves. In what seems like a sliding doors moment, we're told, verse 30, after Isaac finished blessing him and Jacob scarcely left his father's presence, his brother came in from hunting. We're left to only imagine what might have been if Esau had collected his arrows just a little quicker but instead we're invited to round two of the tension roller coaster. Esau plates up this time, bringing his dish up to Isaac, he says, verse 31, my father, please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. His father asked him, who are you? I am your son, he answered, your firstborn, Esau. Well, suddenly we're on a Richter 9, the Isaac on the Isaac Richter scale, and uh, Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came, and I blessed him, and indeed he will be blessed. And if we thought Mount Isaac was intense, it's nothing to the chilling scream of Esau that comes next. Verse 34. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me too, me too, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. And Esau said, Isn't he rightly named Jacob? Jacob, the Hebrew idiom for he deceives, he grasps the foot. 
Well, we wonder with Esau at this point, perhaps Isaac can take back the blessing and give it to Esau instead. Is that what will happen? Esau pleads desperately for a blessing from his father, but there is no way out of this situation. All that is left for Esau is a negative blessing. The only positive thing of the blessing, if you can call it that, that Isaac gives him, is that there will one day be an end to the tyranny of being under his brother's rule. One day. And it's just a hint of where things will go with these two nations between Edom and Israel many centuries to come. Our story, though, concludes in Genesis 27 on a bitter note and a sad one as well. The bitter note is that Esau holds a grudge, a bitter grudge against Jacob. And from that point on, he plans and plots himself. When his father dies, he plans to get rid of Jacob and kill him. He's more like a second Cain in the making, except he's less impulsive, maybe more like Absalom planning for when it will happen. Word finds its way to Rebecca again this time, and already she is quick to act, as always. She hatches another plot to save Jacob by having Isaac send him away to Uncle Laban in Haran, her side of the family, to find a worthy wife for himself among his daughters. Not even Isaac can stand the thought of a third Hittite wife around the dinner table. But the sadness comes in knowing that what was intended from Rebecca's side is just to be in the Hebrew, it's, uh, in the English, it's only for a little while. In the Hebrew, it's only for a few days. And yet it becomes a permanent separation for Jacob and Rebecca. And Jacob will be gone for some 20 years. Rebecca will never live to see him face to face again. She will never live to see the many, many future grandchildren through him either. In fact, as we step back just to reflect and to conclude, in a very real way, everyone loses in this episode in some way. Sin and deceit abound in Genesis 27. And just think about what we've seen so far briefly from each character, starting with Isaac. He's meant to be the head of his family. He's got big shoes to fill. But unlike Abraham before him, he is not invested in his oldest son's welfare when it comes to him choosing good wives and his physical blindness seems to just hint at a spiritual blindness too because we know the prophecy that's been made over his boy's lives and I find it hard to believe that he didn't know as well and yet his disclosure of his plan to Esau to bless him as his death approaches seems directly out of step with that word from the Lord and out of step with what was the norm as well and what we see later in Genesis. He is determined to bless his son Esau despite his son selling his own birthright for a lentil soup, despite his son bringing great grief Esau's wives did to he and Rebekah. Esau, at one level, is also the main victim in the story, and yet the narrator also goes out of his way to point out that not only has he lost the birthright, but he's also married foreign wives, and he's brought trouble into the very midst of his family. And there's just an irony as you get to the chapter 28, verses 6 to 9, 
uh, where we find out that his final attempt to please his father, when it com- not his mother, just his father, when it comes to uh, his wives and marriages, is to, for a third time, have another wedding. And this time, not to Hittites, but to none other than Ishmael's daughter. Explicitly, the half-brother, not chosen line, that's his way of trying to please Isaac. Rebecca, though, she too seems to have been embraced in this episode and ends justifies the means approach to the promise and the prophecy she's been given. And we see her exert her own authority over Jacob, her own control over her son Isaac, using deception as a means to ultimately try and bring about God's will, rather than trust God to bring about his purposes. And here, her and Sarah have some similarity, even if there's differences. Jacob, too, lives up to his name and willingly goes ahead with the mother's, with mum's plan to deceive his father, to seize his brother's blessing, never worried about wronging dad. His only worry is for himself and not getting caught. By the end of his episode, his brother will want him dead. Esau wants to kill him. And he will never see the one person who loves him truly in his family again. It's a lonely journey from here for Jacob. And what we learn from it all as we stand back and just reflect on somewhat of a bleak episode in Genesis is that God really is the only hero in this chapter and in this story. Only a God like our God can use a family as dysfunctional as Isaac's to continue his plan for global blessing. I began with a story about a royal figure who never arrived and how good it is that that is not true of the royal serpent crusher who eventually comes through the line of promise many generations down in the Bible. And what a family line Jesus will come from. You only have to read through the genealogy list at the beginning of the Gospels of Matthew and early into Luke to see that this is no ordinary family. This is a a profoundly sinful family that Jesus descends from. And yet it gives amazing testimony too of the certainty of the king's arrival. Over and over we see throughout Genesis as well as the whole storyline of the Bible that all humanity is persistently sinful, just like you and I and the families we come from too. And yet our God is so gracious. Our God is so wonderfully in control. Our God is so wise in bringing about his plans and purposes, even through a family like Isaac's in the world. God stays in control, even when humanity is at their worst. And God's plan won't be stopped by Isaac's messy family, but it will be painful. But doesn't it point us forward to the greatest example of this as we look all the way ahead in the Bible storyline to the story of all stories at the heart of this story, Jesus paying the penalty for sins on a cross. Isn't that where the ultimate deception took place, where an innocent man was betrayed, was falsely tried, witnesses said lies about him, beaten and hung to death? From a human point of view, all we see is sinful characters when we look at the cross. But after the resurrection, what does Peter say at the first 
Pentecost, he says, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. The cross has been God's plan all along. What about all the sin and deception that happens around it? Peter says again, two chapters later, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. God never loses control. His plan is always good, and we can be sure he will achieve it. The king will certainly return. Remember back in our story today, Genesis 27, how Rebecca said to Jacob, if it all goes wrong, I'll take the curse for you. Well, we know Rebecca can't take the curse for Jacob. In the end, there is only one who can take the curse for our sin, and he's on the cross, Christ Jesus, our Lord, who takes the curse, cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Drinks the cup of judgment and wrath for the sin of humanity, and through his death, you and I are offered blessing. Blessing, forgiveness, and eternal life. Let me pray for us.